welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. So some years ago, Mozambique had just gotten finished with a 20-year civil war. Uh, I, because in Brazil we spoke Portuguese, and theoretically they spoke Portuguese in Mozambique, although it was really 17 different tribal languages, uh, me and a colleague, we were invited over to do a pastor's conference, and it was, um, it was a phenomenal experience, partly because as you drove along the roads, there were, they were pockmarked from where artillery had hit, there were burned out vehicles on every side, um, the people, it was, it was like they'd been blown back in terms of prosperity three or four hundred years, um, which was, was sad to see. We, we got to Kilimani where we had the pastor's conference, and there were, I don't know, it's about 80, 90, 100 pastors that came, and they were missing arms and legs and eyes, and uh, many of them had walked for days to get there. And so it was a real privilege to be there. But the interesting thing was... Um, now that it was coming out of the Civil War, and even during the Civil War, it had been part of a very powerful movement of the Holy Spirit as people were coming to Jesus and uh, exciting things were happening. Now, this had been happening all over Africa, or all over Africa, the Sahara, for some years, and it is phenomenal and marks your life when you get to be part of something like that. Would you open a Bible or an app to chapter 2 of Acts? And we want to see how that happened in the very beginning of the Christian church. And we're going to do a lot of text today, so really encourage you to either have it on an app or a Bible where you can see it and follow along. Chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, Pentecost was one of the important Jewish religious festivals. It was 50 days, Penta for five, 50 days after the 16th of Nisan, a Jewish month. Uh, it's about seven weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, about a week, a little, maybe a little bit more, after Jesus ascended into heaven. And he told the disciples, as we saw, I think it was last week, um, to wait for power to come upon them. They were all together in one place, verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Now, why were they from other nations? Wouldn't you think if they were Jewish men, they were from right there in that geographical area? Well, go back several hundred years. Remember that Israel got divided into two nations after, under Solomon's son. And the, the northern part, Israel, it was conquered by the Assyrians who were like the worst people ever. They would impale whole cities just to make other cities afraid. And they carried them off into exile. They left some, but... Those are called often the ten lost tribes of Israel. doesn't mean they were all lost, but just there's no real um, solid understanding of what happened to all of those people. Some stayed there, and later other people would come in, and they became what we know in the Gospels as the Samaritans. About 130 years later or so, um, in 586 B.C., it started before that, uh, about 15 years before that, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, raised it to the ground, 
led a whole bunch of the Jewish people off into captivity in Babylon. And uh, not until 537 BC did about 42,000 of them come back. But many of them didn't come back. You see, what would happen is people would get, get carried away into captivity, and that would kind of destroy the power base of that region. And so empires would do that, and then they'd resettle, and then they had to choose. Were they going to intermarry? Were they going to assimilate? You know how that is. You can't control who you fall in love with. You control who you spend time with, but not who you fall in love with. That's, you get that one for free today, guys. Um, so, you know, they, you know, so here's a, a young Jewish man and a Babylonian woman, and they fall in love, and they intermarry, and often what would happen is the, the guy would no longer practice his, his Jewish faith. And so we found many people that were assimilated. Some continued to practice the Jewish faith, but they were all over to some extent the Assyrian Empire, but later on the Persian Empire. And when Persia conquered Babylon and uh, the emperor let them go back, some went back and reestablished Jerusalem and under Nehemiah built the walls. But many were the dispersed tribes of Israel throughout the nations, a lot of them in the Persian Empire. Also Alexandria, because some of them had gone down there and there was a big Jewish population there as well. So those who kept the Jew Jewish religion, which were probably the minority, they dreamed of doing a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the high holidays, for uh, Passover and Pentecost. And it probably cost them a year's wages or more, and they would go and celebrate that. And it was easier because of the Roman Empire, it gave them good roads and more safety, able to travel and a lot of things. So they probably made that. Verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? They would have had an accent, you understand. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now some think that this was different than what we've talked about in recent weeks, the, the experience that many have had over the past more than a century of speaking in tongues, which uh, without an interpreter, people don't know what it means because they understood them. Some things think it was different. Some think that the miracle was they were all speaking and people just heard it in their own language. There are various interpretations, um, whether it was in the hearing or in the speaking. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So if you just picture yourself there. It must have been interesting. It must have been loud. It must have been confusing. Verse 13, but others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. There's always people who will scoff at whatever God is doing. Always those who kind of remain resolute in their resistance. So today we want to look at, well, what's the difference? Why do some remain resolute in their resistance and others become convinced and become followers of Jesus? And what's that have to do with us for today? Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he immediately takes on the naysayers. It's nine in the morning, nobody's drunk. Um, and then he quotes from memory this passage from the prophet Joel in the Hebrew scriptures. Well, why would he do that? 
Because these are devout Jewish people that are listening. They love the Hebrew scriptures. Many of them may have memorized this passage. And beyond that, for the last couple of centuries, they've all been reading the same writings and not scripture, but rabbis and famous people had been writing about the coming of the Messiah and what it was going to look like and how to interpret prophecies like this. It was a time in which there was a lot of expectation. The expectation was the Messiah would come and he would conquer the Romans and reestablish the kingdom in Israel. So they were excited about that coming true, but they did not expect, not even the disciples expected, that God would come as a human, live, die, and then individually rise from the dead. They, the Pharisees expected one day a resurrection of the nation, but nobody expected God to come in the flesh and then die and resurrect. So fitting into that genre of people talking a lot about the prophecies, Peter quotes Joel from memory. It's a prophecy that the people listening are excited to understand. Verse 17, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So Peter's trying to convince this crowd that they are witnessing the fulfillment of this prophecy of the pouring out of the spirit. Now, they were aware of some things in the Hebrew scriptures, like when King Saul and his men tried to arrest David, and they all kind of became what today we would probably describe as slain in the spirit, unable to move on. So they, they've, they've, they've heard of some things, but nobody's really seen something quite like this. And these devout Jews from these many nations who'd made the pilgrimage at great expense, they're really hoping that God's going to rescue Israel. They want this to happen in their lifetime. They want the shame of being a conquered and oppressed nation to be taken away. So to find themselves in the middle of what Peter's claiming to be the fulfillment of this prophecy that probably many of them were familiar with is very interesting for them. Verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And some people would say this is reminiscence of Revelation and some of the imagery there. Others would say this, is, this was fulfilled when Jesus died and it went dark when he was on the cross. Uh, so we have kind of both of those. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now Peter's going to stop quoting the scriptures at this point, stop quoting Joel, and he's going to address the crowd and explain how this works. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God do through him in your midst as you yourselves know. These are devout people. They probably have been in Jerusalem for a while. You don't make this trip and then immediately go home, probably at least before Passover, so at least 50 days or so. They would have heard about Jesus. They would have heard about him dying on the cross, and they probably heard rumors about him about the resurrection. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the de definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death 
because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter lays the blame right there at the feet of these devout Jewish people. And then he confirms the rumors that they've heard that Jesus resurrected. And then Peter quotes David at length. We're not going to go through all all of that about how David prophesied of the resurrection and obviously wasn't David that it occurred to. So skipping down to verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he's telling them Jesus is resurrected, sitting at the right hand of God, exalted, and that this is now the Holy Spirit that they're seeing poured out. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, that's King and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They're cut to the heart. We often talk about godly sorrow, that they are, um, it's sorrow over the, the crucifixion of Jesus happened, that they were, you know, the corporate rejection of God's Messiah, and they are now ready to become Jesus' followers. Now, I want you to notice a number of things. Over the centuries, churches like ours and many others, youth leaders, pastors, we've all come to feel like, you know, it's really good when we get together that we have some music, like we just sang a bit ago. We think that, you know, it praises God, it invites the Holy Spirit, we invited the Holy Spirit to come here today. Um, it kind of helps us focus, maybe leave behind what was bothering us before we walked in, and it kind of prepares us emotionally for whatever God's Spirit wants to do uh, when the, the message is coming. I think that's a wise thing. I think that honors God. I think it helps people for us to include music. But there was no music on Pentecost. In, in many countries, flourishing churches work hard to make sure that everybody who comes feels like they're a welcome and honored guest, especially new people, and you know, really show that, they, that we care and um, have refreshments and information booths. I think that's a good thing. I think that's wise. I think we need to do that. I think you guys do a great job of that, and it's important that we do that. It's wise. There were no greeters, no ushers, and no refreshments on Pentecost. <laughs> we will still have donuts today, but, so don't worry. <laughs> now, there are exceptions But the majority of the large churches, both in this country and in many other countries, with attendance of, say, over a 1,000 or more, have exceptional preachers. They're highly educated. They tell enthralling and emotionally moving stories. And they speak for 40 to 45 minutes, most of them. And I think that also, I think it's wise as long as that message can be engaging and helpful. I think that's a great thing. That's wise. It's wonderful. But Peter was a simple, uneducated fisherman. And do you know how long the message we just read through lasted? Four minutes. And they were ready to follow Jesus. Don't get your hopes up. (laughs) But Peter doesn't craft his sermon like Tim Keller or John Orberg or Andy Stanley or any of the super exceptional preachers of today. He basically says, you know, you wanna know what's going on? God's pouring out his spirit. Jesus fulfilled the following prophecies. He's both Lord, he's Christ. You killed him. God raised him back to life. Pretty simple message, four minutes, and they are ready to follow Jesus. 
Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now repent means experience godly sorrow where we're not sorrowful because we're in trouble, we're sorrowful because of the awful way we've treated God. And that repentance means we, we have a change of heart, we turn around, we go the other direction of now following God or following Jesus uh, rather than being in rebellion. Baptism publicly shows that we have experienced repentance and we are committed to following Jesus and it's okay if people know. And everyone who does this, he says, receives the Holy Spirit. Also, just pointing out as a Presbyterian, this verse 39, it's one of the many verses that convinces Presbyterians that we think it's wise to baptize infants. You don't have to believe that to go here, but we want you to understand that there's a scriptural basis for that. Verse 40, and with many other words, and with many other words, see that's where the 40 to 45 minutes is coming in, past the four minutes, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Why does he say save yourselves from this crooked generation? Now remember what the ancient world was like, okay? This is, this is, they still haven't reached their very peak of prosperity, but it's, there's never been an empire like this. Everybody wants in. They, are, they have food and prosperity and roads and a common language, trade language, and more peace with the call the Pax Romana, and they just have options because that's what prosperity gives you. And they have all these different religions. It's pluralistic. You can believe whatever you want. And most of these religions actually encourage people to do immoral things like pay the priest to curse your enemy or have sex with a temple prostitute. As a country, they believe it's fine to just go out and pillage and burn other countries nearby. They have slaves, maybe 20 or 30% of the population. This is this place. And they also uh, support killing unwanted babies and marital infidelity. Same sender jacks and pedophilia all just winked at. That's the Roman Empire at this time. And the Greco-Roman world sees itself as the pinnacle of human achievement. Sound like any society you know? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. It's not a very attractive message. Not at all like, turn your life over to Jesus and he will give you health, wealth, and your acne will go away. I think our society, we see ourselves as the pinnacle of human achievement and we disdain the wisdom from the past and we tend to think our ancestors were mentally inferior to us. Yet loneliness and depression, they're at all-time highs. People are destroying their lives and the lives of their loved ones through alcohol and drugs and sex out of sight of marriage and pornography. Prosperity is often so many options that even the people who say they are committed followers of Jesus they only worship whether it's one or two times a month. They're not involved serving with their spiritual gifts, at least the majority, giving generously, gathering regularly in their small group. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. We have a lot in common with the prosperous, perverse generation in which the apostle Peter lived. And if you're here today, you just hear, you thought, I'm going to go check out Jesus. Or maybe somebody dragged you here and you just didn't have a polite way to say no. So you said, I'll just go. 
Save yourself from this crooked generation. This may be the last invitation you'll ever get. Don't pass this one by. When the devout Jews were listening to Peter, who all of them up to that time, they were dead set against the possibility of an individual resurrecting before everybody else. They were dead set against the possibility that this transcendent God could possibly become human and walk among them, much less fail in their eyes and die on a cross, be killed by the Romans, lose. And yet when those devout Jews listened to Peter, saw it was happening to heard Peter for four minutes, they were ready to follow Jesus because the Spirit was moving. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Did you realize the crowd was that big as we were reading? 3,000 souls. That's not even everybody. A lot, of people, a lot of people became followers of Jesus. Certainly not everyone did. See, we put so much time and effort into worship services and special events with music and carefully crafted messages, genuinely caring for people and their kids when they come. We should do all of those things. That's wise. That's what we should do. But after a simple four-minute message by an uneducated fisherman with no music, greeters, ushers, or refreshments, 3,000 people turned their lives over to Jesus. Why? Because when it comes to the impact of any ministry... Always the most important person in the room is the Holy Spirit. Not the preacher, not the music musician. It... Why does it take the Holy Spirit to convince people to become followers of Jesus or even to convince people who already claim to be followers of Jesus to start obeying him and doing what he says? I want to summarize that today for you and just kind of give you some places to hang that and, three, and say it's because of what we call the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me just get into that for a few minutes with you. The word world used in various ways in the Bible, just as we have lots of words in English, it depends on the context, what it means. Same thing when, when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's the world in a positive sense. God loves humanity, okay? But for much of the world, in particular the New Testament, it's, it means the system of the world, our society, the values, the desires, the behaviors, the attitudes, and it's not positive. It's not actively trying to follow Jesus. In the parable of the sower, Jesus says that the word of his kingdom is sometimes choked out in the thorny ground by the thorns, which he says, among other things, it's the cares of this world. It's the world system. It's the world, it's society around us. Paul writes that the wisdom of this world is made foolish by God because the wisdom of this world is we're going to have a Messiah who's going to conquer and bring in a new kingdom. And God says, my foolishness is he's going to come and voluntarily give his life for his enemies so that they can be won over and become part of his family. The Apostle John gets more specific. We'll put it on screen. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And it's a somewhat complicated passage because it's not saying that when you in, in, in enjoy um, a steak or a chocolate chip cookie or something, that's not okay. But it is saying at least that when we desire immoral things as well as desiring things that other people have, what we call coveting or being proud of what we have, he is saying that's wrong. Apostle Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
that's why we, it, it takes supernatural power beyond a small amount of, I mean, your willpower can do a little bit of it. It takes supernatural power to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And society tries to make us conform. You know that. Act the way they act so they don't feel guilty that you're acting some other way or just so you join in. What do we call it? What do you call it in high school? Peer pressure. Here you go. We call it peer pressure. Been around a long time. That's the world. What about the flesh? The world, the flesh, and the devil. In the Bible, again, the flesh has various meanings. Sometimes it just means human beings whom God loves. That's a positive sense. But often in the New Testament, it's a negative sense of just our sinful desires, the things that by nature we um, seek, unloving desires that go against what God says. In Galatians 5, it says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. By want to do the things that, because you're a follower of Jesus, you wish you were more like him. So it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to actually transform us against this natural flesh that we have. So on Pentecost, you have devout Jews from all over the the world, and they're being pressured by the world, by their own society, not to believe in Jesus because he goes against everything they've always believed. And they're being pressured by their own flesh, their pride especially, because that, that would mean they'd have to admit they were so wrong about Jesus. Pride, big part of the flesh. So you can see why the Holy Spirit would be important in them coming around that day. The world, the flesh, and the devil. What about the devil? We don't talk much about the devil. We're Presbyterians. Um, the Bible is crystal clear that there are evil, supernatural beings with supernatural power whose aim is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Jesus was tempted by the devil. Jesus cast out probably thousands of demons. If you're going to believe that God has given us a reliable written record in the Bible and that that means that there is a God and that he loves you and that Jesus died for you and you can be forgiven and experience God's love and have the Holy Spirit come into you and give you peace and transform you, you can't then take out the part about demons also being real and that they're out to get you. That just wouldn't make any sense. You can't believe one without the other, not be consistent in this church. We believe the Bible's reliable. The devil and his minions, they try to use their power to either keep you from Jesus if you're not yet his followers or get you to abandon him if you have made some kind of a commitment and try to get you to abandon him. Seen a lot of people do that over the years. Or just to make you an ineffective follower. Just make it so you don't have any fruit or hardly any. Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In the Bible, the devil is called the God of this world, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and a number of other names. The Bible does not clearly specify what kind of power the devil might have in your life. We do, most of us have come to believe that demons can tempt you. Demons can throw thoughts that shouldn't be in your brain in there, and you have to deal with that. They can give more power to things like your addictions or other evil things. But clearly right here what it says is they can put a veil so you don't even understand about Jesus. 
We need the power of the Holy Spirit to remove that veil so that people will understand. Is it good to have well-reasoned sermons or for you to read a book that gives you all kinds of good reasons to to help explain away some of the, the arguments that maybe your fellow students or your neighbors or your loved ones have against Christianity? That's great. You should do that. It's wonderful. But what's the old saying? Convince a man against his will, he's of the same opinion still. Generally, we need the Holy Spirit both to woo and to win the person's desires so that they actually want the gospel to be true. They say, that's actually beautiful. Wouldn't that be nice if there was a God of love who would forgive me and welcome me into his family? But then they also go beyond that and become convinced that it's actually true, not just a fairy tale. And it takes the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening here on Pentecost. 3,000 people were won over, not by music, not by a warm welcome, not by a fantastic 40-minute message, but by the Holy Spirit. What does it look like when the Holy Spirit is working powerfully? Does it always include speaking in tongues? It does in much of the world now, but not always. We've got um, several different um, great awakenings we talked about last week, the first in America, the second in America. Neither of those, to the best of our knowledge, had a lot of the, the types of things that we've seen in the Pentecostal movement that kind of gave birth in the third one. We talked last week about the Azusa Street Revival of 1906 and kind of the, the birth of Pentecostalism, which outside of uh, the United States and Western Europe is about 70% of Protestants. Uh, the fourth one was a mix. The fifth one, we don't know. The point is the following. The Holy Spirit does what he wants. And he, it may be that there's this fantastic revival and tons of people speak in tongues and everybody gets healed of cancer. Fantastic. Or maybe that it's much more like in Jonathan Edwards' day and people are just cut to the heart. But he always, when he pours himself out, people repent, they believe, they become lovers and followers of Jesus, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they are transformed from the inside out. And one last thing that I said last week, it's almost always messy. Should we expect the Holy Spirit to pour himself out in our church, on this peninsula, in our nation? He's he's done it in our nation before. A revival where we get to see thousands of people feeling God's love and forgiveness through Jesus and being transformed. Now again from last week, I want you to remember the quote from Charles Finney. A revival can be expected when Christians have a spirit of prayer for revival. So this once again is my question for you. Will you work with the Holy Spirit to develop a healthy prayer life? You personally where instead of being conformed to this hurried life of our current culture, with all the options, you will separate out a healthy amount of time. Maybe it's five minutes you start with or 10. See where the Holy Spirit takes you from there. But you just stop and you concentrate just on praying. I'd like to encourage you, ask God to put three people on your mind. Three people that live in this area that you love. Maybe it's a neighbor, a fellow student. Maybe it's a, a, a family member. And put them on your list and you pray for them every day. If you miss a day, don't worry about it. But get back to it. Develop that habit and also pray that the Holy Spirit would, bring, would pour himself out, bring revival here, the peninsula, the nation. Will you do that? Peter told the crowd, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Some of you have already feel, I'm saved from the crooked generation. What are you doing to save the other people that aren't yet? Every church, there's a metaphor, every church can kind of be compared to a ship. 
It's out on the ocean, kind of like in Hurricane Florence, and it's a bad storm, and the ship is fine and sound, the church, but all around the ship in the waves and the cold sea are people trying to stay afloat, and eventually, if, no matter how good a swimmer, they'll get overcome by the waves or the cold. And some churches are kind of like a Coast Guard cutter that they're just throwing out lifelines to everybody and pulling them in as fast as they can and launching little boats and hauling them in and bringing them in. And some churches are like luxury liners that storm isn't even impacting. People are just eating their buffets and playing shuffleboard. Most churches are someplace in between. Some have just become so frustrated by the rebuffs, by the uh, ridicule, by just being ignored that they've kind of given up. Well, this is my suggestion. How about we take Charles Finney's advice and start, start with prayer? Let God put three people on your heart, develop a, a, a healthy habit, immediately set aside some concentrated time every day. Pray for those people. Pray for the Holy Spirit to pour himself out. Here, our peninsula, the country, that's, what it's gonna, that's where it starts. It starts if we will band together and pray every day. As the band comes up, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we, we admit that um, we have been too conformed to this world and we have not, as, as a church, we have not developed healthy prayer habits, but we've just run after other options. We ask you to forgive us. We ask you to fill us with your spirit and motivate us again to not be conformed to this world, but to spend time with you every day praying and asking you to rescue the ones we love and to pour your spirit out on this peninsula, on this nation, that many, many thousands of people but have the wonderful experience of being forgiven by you, loved by you, and filled with your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.